You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We are, uh, I'm pretty excited. We're going to get to finish out Galatians in the temporary dig, so we'll always uh, remember that, Galatians chapter 4. Here's how I'm going to begin. I want to I tell you a little bit about Charles Spurgeon, um, and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about him at the end. But Charles Spurgeon was a fascinating guy. He, um, in the time that he lived, which was the second half of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon was a, a pastor in England, and he... Um, so, so he, he, he pastored in a time when um, he became famous worldwide uh, in a time when people did not often become famous in their own time. So th- there was no, you know, there wasn't social media, there wasn't, you know, most people who became famous did not become famous in their own time. It was a very rare thing and particularly a rare thing for somebody who was, a, who was a preacher. It was not anything Spurgeon sought out, but Spurgeon was such a uh, dynamic communicator, such a, uh, had such a way with words, he had such an incredible capacity, and Spurgeon did not live that long, actually. I think he, he died in somewhere around his mid to late 50s. Um, he um, always suffered uh, in his health, but he... He accomplished uh, things that were absolutely phenomenal in his lifetime and never sought the fame. It just came. People came from all over the world to hear uh, Spurgeon preach. And he was aware of this and um, was a good steward of it, um, was aware that people sought him for who he was, and so was very careful um, to not... Uh, promote himself and always pointed people to Christ. And so he never, you know, he never minced words. He never sought favoritism. Um, he said things that offended people often, and yet people continued to still seek him out and to clamor after him. But there were times uh, that that Spurgeon would be criticized, and uh, you know he would let people down. And so periodically he would respond. And so. There was a time, he, he would write this publication called The Sword and the Trowel, and he, he, um, he, he kept this up, which was amazing. He, he did most of the writing for it. Um, on Mondays, he, he spent all the day on Mondays doing correspondence. And so anyways, this is um, after he is established as a pastor there in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which, by the way, if you go to London and you go look at, you, know, you want to go see Spurgeon's church, you can go to the Metropolitan uh, Church. It's still there. Um, and, and it's nothing to see. I mean, uh, Leslie and I went a couple of years ago. Uh, we took the public transportation. We went, you know, all the way over to a forgotten part of town, uh, went to the church and went in and was like, hey, this is Spurgeon's place. And they were like, yeah, it is. And that's it. I mean, like we were the only people there, you know, all year maybe. So, uh, it's very anticlimactic. So, look at the pictures online, but save your trip. All right. So, anyway, so he's answering the criticism, and he says this. He says, No one knows the toil and care I have to bear. 
I ask for no sympathy, but I ask for indulgence if sometimes I forget something. I have to look after the orphanage, have charge of a church with 4,000 members, which was unheard of in his day. Sometimes there are marriages and burials to undertake. There's a weekly sermon to be revised, the sword and the trial to be edited, and besides all that, a weekly average of 500 letters to be answered. 500 letters to be answered. So this is 1872, and he asserts, the ministry is a matter which wears the brain and strains the heart and drains out the life of a man if he attends to it as he should. And that was what Spurgeon was, that's how he answered his critics. There were so many people in his day that were wanting to be Charles Spurgeon, but weren't wanting to attend to the ministry. In many ways, as we look at this passage today, Paul's going to change his tone. He's, he has been, if you've been with us in this, in this letter to the Galatians, Paul, he, he came out of the gates to the, to, the, to the Galatians. He came out with this, with this rebuttal, with this rebuke. He's, he's defending the gospel. He's passionate, singularly passionate about the gospel, about defending um, the 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 truth of by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, you are saved, alone, period. That is all that it is. And some teachers have come in behind Paul to this Galatian region, to these believers that Paul had preached to, that he loved. And they have threatened the work that Paul, as a pastor, had, had, had laid this foundation for. And so Paul, man, he is passionately and, and fiercely arguing for this truth of the gospel of Jesus. And so as we, if you've been with us, I mean, there are times that you read this and you think, man, I'm so glad Paul's not my pastor. I mean, it would be hard to take sometimes. But I want you to see, there is going to be a change of tone here in this section of Galatians chapter 4 where we see the, the, the passion of Paul move into a, you know, this, this fierce defender of truth into this pastoral heart for the people that he loves. And I don't want us to miss this transition that this is why he's so passionate about the truth. It's because he cares deeply about these people. And so he, you know, it's like, a, it's like a parent, you know, when your children are young and you see your child and they're, and they're, you know, they're running out into the street. And so there's a tone, there's a parental tone that you take when your child runs out into the street that is a sharp and loud and passionate tone that stops the child dead in their tracks right there from running into the street. You know, it startles them and they stop. And then you run to the child and you pick the child up and you say, that. You don't run into the street. I mean, you tell them the truth of it. But then your, your tone changes to one that says, I, I say this because I, I love you and I care about you. And that's the change of tone Paul's going to make. Both of the tones, the, the sharp tone, that's out of love, and the I said it because I love you is love. 
And both of them have been love. And so Paul's going to clarify that for his readers this morning. And he's going to give us, I think, this great window into the nature of ministry. Not just for professional ministers, not just for pastors, but for all of us. By nature of being a believer in the body of Christ, we're all ministers to each other. And so look with me. I'm going to read. I'm going to start reading in verse 8, and um, we'll, we'll make it all the way to verse 20 today. But I'll, I'll read verse 8, we'll read a few verses, and then we'll, we'll comment on it, and then I'll pick back up here in a minute. But in verse 8, he says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature. Um, you were enslaved to those by by nature, are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul, in these Verses, I want you to see. So in 8 through 11, he's going to draw a startling conclusion. And I want you to see what he says here. So first, he says, when you didn't know God, the first thing he says to the Galatians is that before you were believers, but you know, before the gospel came, you were pagans. So they worshipped pagan gods. Everyone did. Actually, everyone does. And in verses 8 and 9, he's saying they were enslaved in their past to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, and he's referring to the pagan gods, their, their religious system. The, the Greek word is the stoikia. And it's a word that generally describes the religious worldview of the day. The way people thought about life was that there was a God behind everything in the world, every aspect of creation. So the water, the sun, the moon, the stars, land, agriculture, etc. Behind everything, there was a God. And so you would pray to the gods. If you were a farmer, you'd pray to the God that controlled agriculture, Demeter. You tried to appease him. If you were a sailor, you prayed to the God of the sea, Poseidon. If, if, the, if you were going to war, you would pray to Ares. The God of, of sexual love and beauty and fertility was Aphrodite, the God of wine and fruitfulness and festivals. And when you go into prom, you'd pray to the Diocinus, and so on. And the objects they worshipped as God, Paul says, listen, they have no divine status whatsoever. They have no essential attributes of God. They're, they're finite. These things in nature are created things. They're not the infinite creator. And, and Paul, he expands on that in Romans. He says, look, they're, they're created things and you exchange the truth of God for a lie. You worshiped and served created things, not the Creator. And people today are no different than the pagan Galatians in Paul's day. We continue to worship and serve created things. We continue to ascribe the greatest worth to things which aren't God. It just looks different today. Material possessions, nature, position, accomplishment, pleasure, physical beauty, things, placing things, placing other things in the place of God. 
And all of it, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century, is idolatry. And here's the deal. You never really knew where you stood with the gods. So you did your best to appease them. You tried your best not to upset them. You worked hard. You honored them. And you hoped that they found your sacrifice and hard work acceptable enough to bless you. And Paul says, listen, you spent your life doing this. You were enslaved to this. And these gods, they're not gods. In fact, you've come to know the true God, the God that created the heavens and the earth and the land and the sea and the stars and and, and the God who gives life, and you left all of that behind. And he says, so why do you want to go backwards now? Now, this is where it gets interesting, because the Galatians, they would have been shocked to read this. I mean, they're Christians now. I mean, they had no intention of returning back to the Greek pantheon. None of them were going back to Zeus. They weren't going back to Poseidon. In fact, they would say, no, 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 Paul, that's not what we're doing. No, 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 no. We, we're, kind of, we're trying to make progress in this new spiritual life we have by observing the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law, it forbids pagan idolatry. And yet Paul's asking them, with that well in mind, why are you turning back to the weak and worthless principles? Do you wish to be enslaved all over again? See, Paul's making the point. Listen, those things, those pagan religions, they're weak because they don't have power to overcome the guilt and power of sin. They're worthless because they're impotent. They they can't impart new life. And in the same way, the the law, the, the Mosaic codes are weak and worthless principles when you employ them That way, the the Mosaic law, listen, he told us back in in Galatians chapter 3, it declares that the whole world's a prisoner of sin, and it's powerless to set anybody free from sin. All it can do is diagnose your sin. It cannot give you the cure. It can do nothing to cure you. And it is powerful. It's powerless to impart life. It does not give you life. And so to, to substitute the law... For reliance on Christ is essentially to go back to idolatry. That's what Paul is saying. Let's say it this way. There's two ways to be an idolater. There's two ways to reject God. One way to reject God is to worship idols and to look for your meaning and satisfaction in anything other than God. The other way to be an idolater, to be lost and enslaved is to be religious and base your acceptance on anything other than Jesus. Because here's what the Galatian Christians had such a hard time coming to terms with. To be accepted by God, it is enough that Jesus died for your sin and rose from the dead, and by faith you trust Him with your life. It is enough. You see, the Galatian believers were in danger of moving into kind of a, if I can call it this, a biblical, moral, legalistic idolatry. 
They were in danger of adopting a view that rigorous obedience was the way of seeking and earning God's favor. They were in danger of taking God's law, which, which is something good. In fact, Paul is saying in Romans, it's holy, it's, it's righteous, it's good. And using it in an idolatrous way. So let me see if I can give you two examples of how that plays out. Tim Keller talks about this first one in his book on idolatry, okay? He says this, sometimes people say, I just hate myself, I feel very guilty, I can't forgive myself, I have this low self-esteem. It's, it's very typical for people to say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. So I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you ever thought that, if you ever said something like that, look, I know God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself. Whenever somebody says that, the reason you're locked into failure, the reason you're locked into low self-esteem, the reason you're locked into guilt, the reason you can't get past it is not because of what you've done. It's not. It's because of what your heart is making of the thing you have failed. If you failed because of a lack of discipline and therefore you've blown your career, if you failed because you blew a relationship and you feel like I've, I'll, I'll never get anybody like uh, like, I'll never get anybody like him or her in my life, and you just hate yourself, or you failed because there's two or three people you were raised with who have just outstripped you, and you can't forgive yourself? No. The idol of your life says, if you could beat that person, or if you could be as good as him or her, or if you could please your parents, in other words... Why you are ever stuck is never because of what you've done or what has been done to you. It's what your heart is making of the thing you feel like you have to have. And so you've elevated it. You've made ultimate the desire of your heart to not fail, to be a success, to achieve status, whatever is at the root. It has become your God your Lord, your Savior. So you will work harder, be better, do more. That's what it looks like. And I'm telling you, the church is full of that kind of idolatry. We, we all are prone to that. That's why we sing it in the hymn. Prone to wonder. And we do that. We try to save ourselves. And appease that God that we have made ultimate. Instead of receiving God's grace. Through the salvation of Jesus. Another way it shows up, and this is maybe even more insidious, and it's not when you're losing, it's when you're winning. It's when your life is ordered, things are going your way, you're reaping the fruits of your labor, and you're riding high, and you look at your life, and you're pleased with yourself, and you judge your standing before God based upon how well you're doing, and your confidence before Him is because of how well you're doing. Spurgeon said, the better legalist a man is, the more sure he is of being damned. The more holy a man is, if he 
trust his works, the more he may rest assured of his own final rejection and eternal portion with the Pharisees. Sobering. Michael Horton said it this way. What would things look like if Satan actually took over a city? Think about that. So the first frames in our imaginative slide show probably, or slideshow probably depict mayhem on a massive scale. Widespread violence, deviant sexualities, pornography in every vending machine, churches closed down, and worshipers dragged off to city hall. Over a century ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, gave a CBS radio audience a different picture of what it would look like if Satan took control of a town in America. He said that all the bars and pool halls would be closed, pornography banished, pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. Kids would say, yes, sir, no, ma'am, and the churches would be full where Christ is not preached. That's sobering. The enemy is not against moralism and legalism. He is adamantly, however, opposed to Christ alone. That's where he'd like to tempt you. To have you believe Christ is not enough. And that you have to make up the difference. It's insidious. And so he says in verse 9, right here in the middle of it, but now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again? He's saying, Paul, he's saying two things here. They've come to know God, that they've experienced his love through the grace of his son Jesus. We talked about that last week, Easter Sunday morning. We spent the whole morning talking about that. But, but more importantly than that, I think what Paul's saying here is what makes them who they are is that they are known by God. God knows them. God knows you. God loves you. He chose you. He poured out His mercy on you. He lavished His grace upon you. And He hasn't enslaved you. He set you free, adopted you as His son and His daughter. He knows you. Everything about you. Listen to Keller one more time here. Any idol will, any idol will make you enslaved to somebody's judgment. If idolatry is friends and approval and popularity, you'll be letting other people's judgment You'll be letting other people judge you all the time, and you'll be up and down depending on what they say. If it's achievement, then it's what your peers think, or maybe your critics think. Whatever it is, if you're religious, then you want everybody to think you're very godly. But Paul's saying the gospel is your performance uh, means nothing. Popularity means nothing. Those things mean nothing. All that matters is that God knows you. It's what God thinks of you and what God thinks of you in Jesus Christ. Paul's like a laser beam. 
He thinks about that all the time. And as a result, he laughs in the face of anybody else that comes along. Criticism, what people think. He's not up and down all the time. He's like a laser beam. He's focused on that. The important thing is not that I know God, but that God knows me. My knowledge of God goes up and down all the time. But his knowledge of me is absolute and permanent and fixed and unchanging. And the Lord says, I'll never, never, never forsake you. So we have to remind ourselves of that all the time. Remind ourselves of it. And so that's why Paul here in verse 12, he See his tone change. Look at it. He says, brothers, brothers and sisters, I entreat you, which means I beg you, I earnestly plead with you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know... It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. These are the Judaizers, the opponents. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Not only when I'm present with you. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I'm perplexed about you. Hear Paul's pastoral heart and care for the Galatians. I think in this, there's this, there's this picture that Paul gives us as he has been defending the truth of the gospel we see here Paul's care for the culture of the gospel as well not not just the truth of the gospel so we, we should be a people who care deeply about the truth of the gospel but also a, a culture of the gospel as well and so I I offer a few of these things that I I think give us a picture of what a culture of the gospel looks like amongst believers. Here in verse 12, what he's saying is, he's saying, look, become like me because I became like you. That's what he wants. He he used to use the law, just like the the opponents are saying use the law. He, He used to use it as a means of trying to, trying to gain his, his, his standing 
with God. In his former life as a, as a Pharisee, I mean, that's the way he used to preach. That's the way he used to live. He was just like that. He knew all about that. I used to be just like that. But when I heard the gospel, when I encountered Jesus, I became just like you. I became like you, like a Gentile. I, I no longer am trying to, to establish my righteousness based upon obedience. I'm resting now in the obedience of Christ. I, I, can't, I became like you. <laughs> irony of all irony, somebody comes along and you trying to become Jewish. You're going the wrong way. It's like they've switched roles. And so Paul says, look, I, I became like you. you. Become like me now. Don't, don't go the other way. And in 13 through 15, I think what he's saying, and there's this contrast with these folks that have come in that are threatening this gospel culture. And he's saying, look, the gospel, as it is in the culture, it's not peddled as personal gain and it's not showcased spiritual giftedness. It's not peddled for personal gain. And it's not this opportunity to showcase spiritual giftedness. Did you hear this? He said, I came to you of a bodily ailment. I came to you. Here's the reason I came to you. Do you remember Galatians when I came to you? The reason I came is because I was sick. Now, some people think maybe he had malaria. Maybe he had epilepsy. Maybe it was just something with whatever it was. When Paul showed up, there was something probably wrong with his eyes. In fact, I looked at Eric Barton's notes this week, and what he titled this section was Old Goo Eyes, is what he said about Paul. I think that's funny. Old Goo Eyes. There was something visible, visibly wrong and unpleasant about Paul's eyes. In fact, at the end of Galatians, in, in 6.11, he'll say, see, see with what large letters I'm writing you with my own hand. Maybe his eyes were so bad, he's writing. He said, see, I'm writing, I'm using my own hand to write this. And there's something visible and unpleasant and something people would have normally rejected, but the Galatians didn't reject him. Rather, when Paul preached the gospel, they received the gospel. They received him like an angel. They received him like Christ. So much so that he says in verse 15, you would have been willing to pull your own eyes out and give them to me. Paul didn't show up in strength. He showed up in weakness. The gospel is what showed up in strength. It was the, the beauty of Christ that showed up in strength through Paul's ministry. The focus wasn't the messenger. In fact, he's going to say, he, he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I was going to turn there. I don't have time to turn there. Here's what he tells the Corinthians. The Corinthians, they're all... 
they're all wrapped up in this celebrity pastor deal. You know, they all want to claim, hey, look, I, I was converted under Apollos' ministry or under so-and-so's ministry. In fact, I got baptized by Apollos. In fact, some, you know, they had a whole group of people that were wearing T-shirts like, I was baptized by Apollos. And Paul is sick of it. In fact, you know, I'm baptized by Apollos, and then what they do is they'd Instagram their spiritual gifts, you know. They'd, they'd, it's like, I have this spiritual gift, and, and then they write it in their moleskin at the coffee shop, and then they'd Instagram it, you know. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? What are you doing? And he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, look, when I came to you, I didn't come with like elegance of words. And it's not that Paul wasn't elegant. I mean, he's a, he's a cultured man of three languages. He grew up in Tarsus, which is the center of education in the world. It's not that he didn't know how to debate or speak or had fine rhetoric. I didn't show up that way. I came in such a way spoke to you in such a way that you would be absolutely clear that when you heard the word of the gospel and the word of Christ that you knew it was the power of the Spirit not my personality or I don't know what all this nonsense is about who you follow and in fact, the whole thing is he's about spiritual gifts. That's why he writes 1 Corinthians 13. It, it wasn't necessarily because Paul thought, man, someday in the 20th and 21st century, they're going to really need something to read at weddings. And um, that love chapter is going to be pretty cool. Uh, he wrote that because, you know, chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts. I don't know. 13 is probably about spiritual gifts. You can have all the spiritual gifts in the world, but if you don't have love, you know what they are? Good for nothing. So I, the gospel, a, a gospel culture that Paul's talking about and reminding them of, is it... We don't peddle the gospel for personal gain. We don't peddle the gospel to showcase our spiritual giftedness. So I'm going to rant here for a second. We have an Instagram culture of Christianity filled with colored pens and moleskins. And I think that is opposed to a real gospel culture that Paul's speaking about. We have a look-at-me Christianity versus a look-at-Christ Christianity. And I will tell you, nothing will steal your joy faster than focusing on yourself. Nothing. Because here's the deal. The law sets you up only for a look-at-me Christianity. And then you have no other hope for some, than for somebody to like your picture on Facebook or Instagram or retweet you. Th then you have no other hope for that. And I know, I just lost half of the group here, okay? But trust me, this is a thing. You can Google it. 
But I mean this. You're living your Christian life looking for the approval of the world for your sanctification. And I'm telling you, that is not where it is found. Self-gratification ends in... I got this from Mark Kirkendall. He's brilliant. Self-gratification ends in self-destruction. True joy is never found by shining a light on yourself. How many of us would truly want everyone to see who we really are without all the filters and planned quiet times? But I'd say this. In fact, Christ sees who we really are and He says, you know what He says? Yes, Father. They're with me. They're mine. Absolutely mine. Unfiltered. In that moment. Even in that moment. They're mine. That's what he says. Because he never, 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 never forsakes you. So we don't have to peddle the gospel like that with each other. The other thing is in verse 16, a gospel culture means that we have people in our life that are willing to tell us the truth for our good, even if it means their harm. People that will tell us the truth for our good, even if it means their harm. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 16. So here's what I'd say. In a gospel culture, it means that we have people who are ahead of us in the gospel to, to whom we're and I'll use this word, and I don't like the word, but I like the word. We're accountable. In the sense that there are people that are further along than us that have access to our life, and somebody that, look, when we're out of step with the gospel, when our life is out of sync with God's word, they'd say so. They'd say, hey, look, I, man, I don't know, but you're, you're just, you seem to be trying so hard here. Have you forgotten the gospel? Or, hey, I don't know, you're, something's off with you. You seem to be out of step here. How long has it been since you have bowed your head and to the Father gone in confession in the name of the Son. Seems like maybe it's been too long. People that would tell us the truth. Even if it means that, you know what, they'd risk us being mad at them for doing it. 
Uh, here's the third one. A culture where we are more interested in Christ being formed in each other than we are in people following us. They make much of you, he said, but for no good purpose. These opponents are trying to box Paul out, trying to get him out of the way so that they could gather the people to themselves. And when they gather, when you see people gathering people to themselves, there's not a gathering of people to Christ. In fact, it is leading people away from Christ, I would argue. This is great. Chapter 2, Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain calls it the great law of human action. It's when Tom, he gets the other boys to whitewash the fence for him. <laughs> it's this power of exclusion. It's what he does. He, he, uh, he's painting the fence. He doesn't want to paint the fence. And some boys come along and they're, you know, they're chiding him. And they're like, hey, we're going to go swimming. Don't you wish you could go? He's like, no, not really. Like, don't tell us you you think painting that fence is better. He's like, ah, well, I don't know. Sure, great responsibility I have here. And he begins to work his manipulation. And before long, he says this. He had a nice... He'd had had a nice, good, idle time all the while, plenty of company, and the fence had three coats of whitewash on it. And if, he'd had, if he hadn't run out of whitewash, he'd have bankrupt every boy in the village. He'd, had, he'd gotten to the place where he had boys paying him to be able to paint the fence for him. Because he made it seem like, hey, this is, this is so exclusive. Man, if, if he... It's so exclusive, man. You, only the few get in on this deal. And he said to himself, Tom said to himself that it was not such a hollow world after all. He had discovered the great law of human action without knowing it. Namely, that in order to make a man or a boy covet a thing, it is only necessary to make the thing difficult to attain. The Judaizers had to get Paul out of the way. And then, acceptability was redefined. It was defined in a way that acceptable was now in relation to the Judaizers. They had the authority. And one in which you needed to be accepted by. And they appealed to the weakness and insecurity of the Galatians. Well, to weakness and insecurity of the human race. And were conforming to a culture of exclusion, not the image of Christ. Well, the last point I'll make is that it's got to be a culture that's marked less by the pursuit of glory and more by the hope of anguish. Hope of anguish. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Like too many, 
Too many people are pursuing their own glory. And yet I think we miss out on this great hope of the anguish. This, this, you know, Paul uses this metaphor of childbirth. There's hope in the midst of the anguish of childbirth, or so I'm told. I mean, so much so, people will do it again. Or women will, anyways. <laughs> Guys never would. Spurgeon. I'll end here. During his first significant illness. And he was... Spurgeon suffered all kinds of things. Depression was one of them. He, he was depressed often. But he said this. He, and he, I don't think he fully understood his depression. I don't think he fully understood his other things that were going on with him. But he, but he said this. He said, do not, just, do not attribute this illness to my having labored too hard for my master. For his dear sake, I would that I may yet be able to labor more. And later he said in, in that same sermon, he said, I look with pity upon people who say, do not preach so often, you'll kill yourself. Oh my God, what Paul would have said to such a thing as that. Unwavering in his belief in God's sovereignty, he said it would be a very... Sh- sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by His hand, that my trials were never measured out by Him, not not sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and quantity. And asking and answering the question why that was so, he said it is the surest way to teach us that we are not necessary to God's work. And that when we are most useful, He can easily do without us. If He bids us carry a burden, He carries it also. If there's anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, tender, yea, lavish and super abundant in love, you always find it in Him. is his last sermon to his congregation. These 40 years and more I've served him. Blessed be his name. I've had nothing, nothing but love from him. And I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if it so pleased him. His service is life, peace, and joy. Oh, that you would enter it at once. God help you enlist under the banner of Jesus even this day, my friends. Then he concluded with amen. He walked off out of his great big pulpit. Went to rest. Never preached again. Loved the Lord all the way to the end and knew God's love for him. That's a gospel culture. 
Eyes off of him. Eyes always on Christ. Knowing the sufficiency of Jesus and that it is enough.